I'd noticed that sometimes I'd go in and the board would find themselves in a, a difficult relationship dynamic, something uncomfortable, difficult going on that was distracting them from their main task. And I'd sometimes find that bringing in quite a simple idea from the world of psychology um, could really unlock uh, a difficult situation. And then we mature psychologically and we realise most things are okay and a bit bad and a, and a bit good and they're complicated and, and grey and, uh, and we come to terms with that. But when we're under pressure and what Klein would call uh, when we experience persecutory anxiety, which may happen on boards, um, we can revert to this more simple way of, of viewing the world. And I think if we can invest some, a bit of time in understanding more each other more broadly, when things do get bumpy, there's, there's, a, there's goodwill in the bank, there's mutual understanding, we can mend things more easily um, and we can get through things. I'm Ian Rodwell, host of the Linklater's Ideas Foundry, where we talk about and try to unpick the art of working together in the 21st century organisation. Now, when I first met my next guest, she told me about the research she was undertaking with a colleague for a book on the psychology of board relationships. Fast forward four years, and I received an invite to a publisher's event. It seemed the book I'd heard about, The Art and Psychology of Board Relationships, had not only been researched, but written and published. And it really is an excellent read, insightful, practical, beautifully structured and compellingly written. And I'm delighted that Helen Hopper, one of the co-authors, is able to join me today and talk about The Secret Life of Boards. So, Helen, welcome to the Ideas Foundry. Thank you, Ian. What a lovely introduction. Well, look, I guess to, to start, could you say a little about what you do, as the book only represents a fraction of all your skills and talents. Oh, thank you, you're too kind. Um, I, uh, I, my main job is in leadership development. So I co-founded a leadership development consultancy 13 or 14 years ago called H-Cubed. And um, most of my time these days is spent working with clients uh, ranging from large corporates and professional services firms to uh, fast-growth startups, some charities and public sector as well. So that's one of my, my hats. Uh, I also uh, work in a charity called The Listening Place, which is a mental health charity. Uh, it does face-to-face -face support for suicidal people in London. We train volunteers to, uh, to do that vital support work and I do uh, development projects for them. I spent uh, 18 months as COO there recently in an executive role, which is really interesting and, and very rewarding. Uh, and I sit on a couple of boards myself. Uh, I'm, you're probably getting a, a theme for um, psychology and mental health. And uh, I'm a trustee of a, a charity called The Mix, um, which focuses on digital well-being for young people. So that is a whole cupboard of hats, I think, that you are that you are wearing there. But looking at the book, which we've got on the table in front of us, um, can you tell me a little bit about the genesis for the for the book? Was there one uh, ep sort of epiphany, or was it just a series of events that thought, ah, oh, yeah, I really do need to to write something like this? Well, it it started with my co-author Joy Harkup and I meeting, which weirdly, given that we both live in the UK, uh, was in India. 
So we were uh, on something called uh, a powwow with an organization called Leaders Quest. So they gathered 100 leaders from organizations from across the world. Uh, and they do it regularly. Uh, and in this case, it was in um, Mumbai and Rajasthan with a particular theme. Uh, and this was about sustainable leadership. How do organizations and how will they be create you know, sustainable uh, places, um, sustainable profitability and prosperity for organizations, for communities, um, and for people. So we were looking at those kind of things. And we'd go out, look at these projects, and in the evening, we'd sit around a fire, literally, which is probably the earliest kind of group way of getting together in a group, uh, and talk about what we'd seen, really mind-expanding and mind-bending um, thoughts and uh, connections. And that's where Joy and I met. And then back in London, we had a reunion. And uh, Joy had been brewing up a, a thought for a book. She's a dispute resolution lawyer. And she'd been quite interested in how do things get to that stage with organizations, with groups, with boards, um, in at the stage where you're really looking at a very difficult situation that needs to be resolved. And um, she started to talk about um, how there was a gap in the market for a book that looked at boards not from a governance and process uh, regulatory point of view, um, but from looking at relationships, because that was often what wasn't working in these situations where things were unraveling. And, uh, and I had, it really chimed with me. She, she, she laughed. If she was here, she'd say, I, I bit her hand off, because she outlined what she was thinking and said she was looking for a co-author. And I said, well, I'll do it. Um, and I've been thinking, I, go, I do, um, amongst other things, board evaluations and, and board development. And I'd notice that sometimes I'd go in and a board would find themselves in a, a difficult relationship dynamic, something uncomfortable, difficult going on that was distracting them from their main task. And I'd sometimes find that bringing in quite a simple idea from the world of psychology um, could really unlock uh, a difficult situation. And so the idea of a book where we could include a number of these things in practical application, yeah, it really inspired me. So you talk about a number of different scenarios. Uh, that boards may encounter, um, but which is the one that you see the most in the work that you do with boards across, I guess, different sectors? Yeah. Um, so in the in the book, we look at seven different difficult relationship dynamics, and through my work and in the research that we did with forty or fifty board members, uh, one or two really came to the fore, and probably the one that came to uh, that was most common that people spoke about was what we call the executive, non-executive seesaw. And this is uh, the situation that many boards find themselves in, which was an, is an uneasy balance of power between executives and non-executives or trustees. And it's, it's very, very common. And I, I think the reason for that is that boards are a very unusual structure because they're not hierarchical. So in many, uh, in, um, most things that we do that are organized, organized in hierarchies, and I think humans are quite wired for that. And on a board, no one's really in charge, as OpenAI may have found out recently. That's it, something that's in the news right now. Um, so you've got someone chairing it. You might have a senior independent director. 
Um, you've got a CEO who's leading the executive, but, but no one's really calling the shots. And so there's a constant need to balance, uh, balance that power. And so in, in the book, we, uh, we have a sort of are you noticing section. And for the, for the seesaw, the sorts of things um, that you can notice when that one's getting out of kilter, you know, perhaps there's a bit of, uh, of meddling or perceived interference um, by non-executives who are straying into executive areas, perhaps taking and even uh, communicating decisions uh, within the uh, you know within the uh, the staff of the organisation, and that feels uncomfortable. They're doing that without any permission at all, or perhaps it's an executive or one of the executives that's really um, taken power and maybe. Uh, smiling and nodding when decisions made in a board meeting, but outside of that board, they're either not implementing them or they're morphing into something else that isn't quite what was agreed or in the spirit of what was agreed on the board. And so there's this uh, there's this negotiation of power, um, and and I think virtually everyone we spoke to had had that uncomfortable experience of trying to trying to negotiate that. And I, I think it's the it's the nature of a board and probably part of you know a healthy board as well. Thank you. And the, the book discusses the, the psychological dynamics of boards, um, but to what extent are the situations you describe and the tools for dealing with them transferable to other types of group or team? Because as I was reading the book, I was thinking, you know, I, I don't think this is just boards. Yes, it is a, you know, as you said, quite a peculiar and individual structure. But there are lessons that other different types of organisation could could learn uh, learn from, from from as well. Yeah, I think the the more we um, proceeded with the research and the analysis, the more we realised that most of the situations happen in a group of more than two people trying to do something together. Um, and this the uh, executive non-executive seesaw is kind of specific to boards because that's an unusual structure. But when you start to think about a standoff situation where people have fallen out and positions are polarised and it's hard to see how they're going to come together to find a, a shared way forward. Clearly something that happens you know, across all of, you know, it happens at home, it happens at large organisations, small organisations. Uh, we talk about bullying on boards and, and uh, you know, that's absolutely uh, everywhere. So I think most of the most of the situations we talk about are totally relevant to certainly all, all sorts of um, sizes of organisation um, and I would say most teams uh, and not just at work. So across all situations, yeah, perhaps there's another book to be written there. Another one of the, the scenarios that we talk about that perhaps is less noticeable but I think is pervasive is the difficulty of harnessing diversity on boards. So it's not something that comes to mind when people talk about relationship dynamics necessarily because it doesn't have the kind of emotional, obvious, um, uh, it's, not so, uh, it's not so apparent to people um, going through it because it's not happening at a point in time. It's pervasive most of the time that it's, uh, most boards are, I'm glad to say, now signed up to the thought that getting diversity around the table is a good thing, uh, whether that be gender diversity, you know, ethnicity, um, whether it's age, whether it's neural diversity, 
any kind of uh, diversity you can think about, that that will be a good thing and will enable better decisions and uh, enable you to see further as well, different perspectives. But it's really, really hard um, to get those people in. Um, and once you have, it's even harder then to really get what we might think of as inclusion, to ensure that people um, that have a different perspective are able to bring that across a range of different topics and that that is heard and integrated, used in board decisions. Um, so that seemed to be something that people don't necessarily notice as a relationship difficulty, something that's hard to do. Um, but I think it's something that virtually everyone we spoke to had struggled with, either from the point of view of not feeling included or from really wanting to include others, but feeling awkward about doing it, feeling clumsy, feeling they'd misstepped or, or not knowing how to really bring people in. So one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was the extensive and wide range of different psychological frameworks and models uh, that you bring in. And I, I learned so much from it. But are there one or two that you find yourself drawn to more frequently, or your favourite children amongst oh. all those models? <laughs> uh, and are there examples you can provide of how you have used them in practice? Yes. Um, I, I think there are a couple. The one, one that um, comes up again and again is the, the idea of splitting. And so this is an idea from the realm of um, psychodynamic psychology. And it, I think it was Melanie Klein that first really um, explored and I think came up with the concept as well through work with young children her focus was really um, child development and how our defense mechanisms psychological defense mechanisms develop how they they form and are shaped within us and then how they can get triggered or set off in situations in later life so the thought around splitting is that as, as babies actually we experience a very complex world and we're trying to make sense of it with apparatus that's quite new and and um, and straightforward and uh, that at a very young age we experience uh, pleasure and we experience pain and things are one or the other and then we mature psychologically and we realize most things are okay and a bit bad and a, and a bit good and they're complicated and, and gray and uh, and we come to terms with that but when we're under pressure and what Klein would call uh, when we experience persecutory anxiety, which may happen on boards, um, we can revert to this more simple way of, of viewing the world. And, and I think we all have a bit of a liking for it. Um, uh, where we're recording, I can see a cinema across the way and you know, they'll have had a Marvel movie, I imagine there quite recently, where we've got you know, heroes and villains and the, you know, the hero wins in the end. And you know, there's something really psychologically satisfying about that way of viewing the world. And there's also something really satisfying about being the hero and making other people the villain. And so in complicated situations, which is what boards are typically conjuring with, there's, if there was a simple answer, it probably wouldn't come to board level. It's usually complicated uh, judgment calls where there's a great deal of uncertainty, that that is anxiety you know, provoking, it, it triggers this defense that makes us want to see a simple answer, it makes us want to split things into, well, is it, do we need to cut 
costs or do we need to invest? Do we need to go local? Do we need to go global? You know, to try and find a simple answer where it probably doesn't exist and to gather people around us that agree and to create a group of other people that don't, who are wrong, and proceed on that basis. And um, when that happens on a board, if there's a, a major strategic question that has become split, so polarised, uh, two groups usually who have different views on, on what should happen, um, that can get quite entrenched and it can get into a situation where people get further apart. And so what we would do coming into a, um, a, a board like that, there's a lovely example in the book of a, uh, uh, someone on a board that had invited someone in uh, to help them. And uh, they, what they did was say, okay, well, let's just swap sides for a moment and uh, you know, side A, just explain to me side B's rationale and keep explaining it until it makes sense and, and vice versa for side B. So swap sides, explain the other side. Um, and that's really an exercise in perspective taking, in trying to get beyond the other person's wrong to they, they're probably a sensible, bright person that's got a good point and they're a well-intentioned person. So if I can really understand where they're coming from, um, then that might make them interested in really understanding where I, we are coming from. And between us, we can probably get to a third place that's better than either and has a, a bit more nuance and a bit more sustainability to it. Um, so, so we would often do that sort of exercise uh, with a board of, we call it um, working with dilemmas rather than seeing something as a polarity and a, a decision that needs to be black or white, yes or no, to create a way of exploring a lot of the grey and the nuance and, and pulling out useful threads and collectively coming to a place that you can all live with that isn't a mushy compromise that no one's happy with, but it's actually quite an exciting uh, and energised place of, of best of both. Thank you. And one of the, the models that I was delighted to see in there, because I came across it about 20 years ago, and intrigued me was transactional analysis. <laughs> the thing is, I, I, I very rarely come across it, and I don't know whether it's sort of like fallen out of psychological favour as, as a kind of like a 1960s thing. Yes. But it always resonated with me. Yes, and that would have been my second favourite child, actually. Ah. I was almost <laughs> thinking that one. Because um, I, I completely agree. So it's a, it's a 60s thing, and I, I like to work from the original books. I buy most of my books second-hand, and I've got a delightfully 60s illustrated book of um, transactional analysis, Games People Play. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it is really, really powerful, and I think it's come back into to vogue um, for, for a number of reasons. And the... the th a couple of things I think are particularly relevant for boards and they are things, uh, they're ideas that we frequently work with when we're working with boards. So the, the two elements um, that, that I'm thinking of, one is the idea of parent, adult, child, um, that we, so, so from the ideas of transactional analysis would be um, that we very early on in life, through our experiences, develop scripts, uh, ways of handling ourselves, ways of staying safe in the world, positions that we take, um, because uh, you know that's that's the way we can uh, come to terms with usually our family situation and the, the world around us, and that those scripts they persist um, literally in the words that we say sometimes when faced 
with a difficult situation. Um, and so most people will have the experience of saying it's not fair as an adult and realising it's a very childlike thing to say. I'm off to my room. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but it's a script that, you know, we've learnt from life and, and it pops out. And that uh, un under, under pressure, uh, we can uh, move from being an adult, as you and I are sitting here um, today, uh, to a different psychological state that is really a, a facsimile, a replication of a psychological state from when we were a child. And, and it's either the child position, and, and typically that can be a defiant child, I'm off to my room, or compliant child of, yes, I'll do that, even though I don't agree with it and it really annoys me. Um, so the child position, or to a parental position, of, um, and, the, and the two parental positions, again, they'll be facsimiles of what we experienced as children. The critical parent, it's not good enough, you're not good enough, uh, that won't do. Um, or the nurturing and potentially sort of smothering parent of don't worry, it'll be all right, they're there, I'll do it, never you mind. And that we can, under stress and duress, uh, find ourselves tripping into one of these perhaps a judgmental parental role as, an, as a non-executive. Well, you said you'd deliver this piece of transformation and it you know, looks like a dog's breakfast. Um, or perhaps into a, a, a compliant child position of, um, yeah, okay, so that's what the board say and I disagree with it and I've got good reasons, but actually they must know what they're talking about, so I'll go ahead and do that, but feel really quite angry about it. Um, so we can find ourselves in those positions rather than coming into an adult position, which is conjuring, which is talk, uh, dealing with the actual facts and situations of the world around us rather than these ghosts, if you like, of our, of our previous experiences. So we sometimes, sometimes you can pick out phrases when you're, we do board observations and you can pick out phrases that sound quite parental or quite um, childlike and it's very interesting to reflect on those and um, uh, and, and how those, uh, how people are getting somehow caught into these patterns uh, that, that aren't at their best adult self. Now these patterns of interactions between our, our internal parent, if you like, and our internal child, um, they can take certain forms. And one we talk about in the book is the drama triangle, uh, which is a, such a classic... Um, it would be called a game in transactional analysis, but it doesn't feel like a game when you're playing it. I think it can be extremely painful and confusing. A drama triangle always has three positions, and um, they are the... Uh, it's a, a drama, obviously, a difficult situation. And there'll be someone that is experiencing uh, being a victim, being attacked, being under siege, being unsupported. There'll be someone uh, that is perceiving themselves or perceived as an aggressor, an attacker, um, someone who is actively uh, you know, taking lumps out of somebody else, psychologically speaking. And then there's the third position of the rescuer, the person that is coming in to, uh, to uh, take care of the, of the victim, to stand up, you know, perhaps it's a, a, you know, the a, a classic white knight position to, to fend off an attacker. And the interesting thing about those three positions is that they're all pretty unhealthy, really, because as adults we don't need to be any of those things. And that they are all positions that uh, 
enable us to, to take power to ourselves. There's power in being a victim. There's power in being an aggressor. There's power in being a rescuer. And that if we stand in one of those positions in relation to, to other people, uh, we take power from them rather than enabling them to show up as um, competent, capable, self-sufficient um, adults that can take care of themselves. Uh, and if, if one person sort of trips into one of those roles, and we all, we'll all have a valency for, for one or the other, I, I have a bit of an aggressor, actually. I can trip into that. So thank you for the raised eyebrows of surprise there, Ian. Um, and I make no comment. <laughs> and then it can trip... Uh, it can trip uh, you know, other people then perhaps into, into the victim or into the rescuer. The final thing about the drama triangle is we spin around in the roles. So you'll see this you know, in, in, uh, in life, you'll see it in films, uh, that you can quite quickly go from feeling like a, a victim in a situation to thinking, well, I'm not having that. And so you then get into an ag aggressor mode and you start to, you know, hit back from far more firmly than you normally would, and you know, w with some, uh, you know, unhelpful power behind it. And then perhaps the the person that you, uh, you know, that was the victim is then moves into rescue a role of somebody else that's now taking it, and, and it all spins around in a very, very confusing way, until somebody can step back from the drama, and say, oh, you know, what what's happening here? Is it useful? What's actually going on? You know, let, let's talk about the, the situation that we're actually trying to, uh, to deal with together. Yeah, so, so I love transactional analysis too. I, I always think with transactional analysis, you'll never experience a, a board meeting again <laughs> because you can always see these roles being played out and you can just uh, yeah, sort of spot the adult, spot the, uh, spot the child, spot the, uh, spot the parent. Um, yes, yeah. Now, look, the, the book diagnoses and responds to situations that have already occurred and we've spoken about a number of those situations but are there things that boards can do at the outset to minimize the chance of them happening in the first place yes absolutely so um the book is called the the art and psychology of board relationships and the art is really an acronym uh so the the three letters and i'm not sure that it's possible to prevent uncomfortable dynamics on boards and and some of that is the energy and tension some of that is is quite helpful to a process of trying to work through things together um, but I think um, the the art which is about primarily the a of it is about awareness um, can really help you spot them developing uh, to notice in yourself and in others that things might have you know, a, a level of emotion in the room, or as you say, people, you know, find becoming parental or, or perhaps feeling victimized, and you can notice that. Um, I think that awareness of when things are getting to an unhelpful level um, is a really vital skill. Um, so I think uh, attending to that, and the book has um, some practical exercises, uh, and you, you, you mentioned one there of, uh, of spotting who's in what position uh, in, in a meeting and noticing those things. And it has some practical exercises for noticing in yourself as well when dynamics might be happening or starting to, to, to bubble up. And it also has, a, has are you noticing sections for each of the seven difficult patterns that we've, uh, we've, we cover. 
So you can use those as checklists to think, hmm, are we going in that direction? So I don't think you can avoid difficult things, but I think you can notice them happening. Uh, and then the second letter of art is the relationships part. And if difficult dynamics are emerging, bubbling up, happening, then the attending to relationships, I think, is the absolutely vital thing. So uh, all relationships uh, you know, are, are up and down, and I think that's natural. But the key bit is, um, is mending little, little ruptures, little tears, little things that have gone awry, and, or you know, where someone's felt hurt or uncomfortable. Um, and the R in relationships is, is very much about attending, noticing and attending to those things and spending a bit of time with somebody. Um, perhaps trying to uh, talk through if something's felt difficult and uncomfortable to find out if there's something underneath to, uh, to bring things a bit to the surface and, and talk them through. That time spent on relationships I think is absolutely vital. And to your point about um, avoiding getting in difficult situations, if there's if there's one thing, I think um, that would be, as boards, spending time together uh, and not just um, agenda time, uh, working on the task in hand, um, but between you know, the beginning and the end of, of, of meetings. I, I, I love it when I see board members traveling to boards together or um, perhaps traveling out, having a board away day having a board away at a site or in a different country, a different operation, and you travel there together, you spend the night perhaps there, maybe you go out and view some of the operations and talk to people. And it's use really useful to get out of the ivory tower, which is another one of our scenarios. But more so in that time spent, relationship building, um, understanding a bit about what make each other, makes each other tick, uh, where their, someone else's perspectives have come from, their life experience, their personality, their character, their beliefs, their values. And I think if we can invest some, a bit of time in understanding more, each other more broadly, when things do get bumpy, there's, there's, a, there's goodwill in the bank, there's mutual understanding, we can mend things more easily, um, and we can get through things. So, so I think that that's really vital the art and the final the final bit of art is the T, the tactics um, and that's just a few tricks and tactics um, to navigate difficult situations um, to have in your back pocket and I can think I think those things can stop difficult situations escalating so I, I think you can head difficult situations off at the pass sometimes and not always um, because some, some situations come at you externally. In the book, we talk about the doomsday situation where there's an existential threat to the organization. And, you know, if that's going to happen, it's going to happen. Um, but the more that you can do to strengthen relationships beforehand and to have your antennae really tuned to what's happening and why, the more likely you are to, to get through that in a constructive way. And, of course, I can think of an, uh, an alternative to the R. Oh, what's that? Or just read the book. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, this may f feel like an unfair question, but you've spoken about you yourself, you're involved in boards. How hard or easy is it to put your own advice and guidance into practice? Uh, I, incredibly, incredibly hard. So I do think that um, psychologists, you know, it's, it's like GPs having bad health and 
um, <laughs> that we're probably the worst and, and I would certainly put myself in that category um, and the re and, and, and not just on board so I certainly see myself tripping into these things and, and boards that I'm on tripping into these things and I see myself um, tripping into the, the traps at home um, in all sorts of situations of, of getting very attached to being right about a particular thing and not thinking that the other person may also have a, have a right position and if we could both understand each other's, we'd both be in a better place. Uh, so um, all the time uh, and I think that's because uh, a lot of these relationship issues, whether it be at boardrooms, uh, teams in generally, work teams or, or at home, are coming from defensive reactions to things and uh, and those defensive reactions are unconscious so they're they're a bit unbidden they rise up in us they're also physiological you know bits of my brain are going offline uh, at a certain point uh, when something happens that I'm uncomfortable with or I feel challenged and so the conscious part of my brain that might have some great tactics or might think I'd be better to, you know, stop for a pause for a beat here and uh, and take a breath and ask a question rather than repeat the thing I just said that the person's already heard. You know, that bit of my brain has gone offline. And so I'm on a personal uh, quest, I guess, to be online, to be conscious, to be taking active conscious decisions uh, more of the time and unfortunately, I think that's going to be a lifelong uh, journey. I don't think I'll ever get there, but, uh, but I'd like to, and maybe that's what matters. Well, you know, I find that answer incredibly reassuring. Um, as somebody who often wonders, why am I talking about these topics? I'm the last person to be talking about particular things. Um, so look, where, where next? Are there, are there things that you're doing to spread the message that's... Uh, messages that are in the book or you know are you hard at work on its successor <laughs> the art and psychology of teams yeah. <laughs> yes yeah um i think i i think the successor book um i think there is something about um, teams we're not hard at work on on the next book um and uh but i think there is a really good book to be written i don't know if it'll be me or, or others um but i think it's uh, or indeed you or uh, well i think that would be good in good time. Um, I the other thing the thing we're doing right now with the book a few things. We're quite keen on getting it into business schools uh, and uh, particularly MBA programs because I think there is a sea change uh, away from uh, governance and some of the more technical crunchy skills of uh, leading organisations, whether that's executive or non-executive to the psychology, the relationship side of things. I think there's a, an opening up and, and there isn't um, so much in terms of syllabus there, books that people can read and discuss and apply. So um, I think next year uh, we, we've, uh, it's lovely to have been invited into, onto a couple of programmes already to talk about it and I think we'll be looking to do that because we're, we're Joy and I's um, aim really is to get the book into as many people's hands as possible and I hope they'll read it and use some of it and uh, boards will uh, get along and, and uh, get, get on with the work in, in hand uh, more effectively. So we thought that's one way of, of doing it. The other thing uh, we were 
thinking about, uh, we, we work with boards already and we quite like almost a, a board um, reading group where a, a board uh, reads the book or a version of it and then has a session uh, where they, they look at themselves, you know, where, where, which one of these traps, you know, do we tend to fall into, where might we be individually, where do I tend to go, how might I be contributing to these things. So we'd really uh, like to get it out there in action in boards, that's, that's really what we're interested in. Having, having been in a room for four years, uh, we'd now like to see it in the wild. <laughs> I love the idea of uh, of a reading group. Although I'm I'm hoping that it won't be as long as is it the reading group that's just finished Finnegan's Wake and they've they spent about thirty years on it. I yeah. did hear about that, and I still don't think they've really understood it, which is maybe well, I don't think anybody. I don't even Joyce understood it. But um, <laughs> um, Helen, thank you so much for coming in and uh, talking about the book. And if there is a successor, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Oh, thank you, Ian. It's been lovely to talk to you about it. Mm -hmm.